gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe. Here in this great hall of justice are the most powerful forces of good ever assembled. Superman. Batman and Robin. Wonder Woman. Wonder Twins, Zan and Gina, with their space monkey, Bleak. Dedicated to truth, justice, and peace for all mankind. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 101 of the Man of Screen Podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo. In this episode, I'm going to cover two more hours of the all-new Super Friends Hour. The main feature will be Day of the Planned Creatures, and the second will be Super Friends vs. Super Friends, which pretty much is what it says it's going to be. And there also will be one additional segment that I'm going to give full coverage to in the, I want to say it will be the first segment, as Superman and Wonder Woman will fight Dr. Fright. So that's what I've got on on tap for this one. Here we go, into the uh, second hundred episodes of of this podcast. Now that all the festivities of episode 100 are behind me, I'm looking forward to, looking forward to keeping this thing going as I roll toward the rest of this year and, uh, the Steamroll 2, 1978, and my coverage of Superman the movie, which I am still working on getting uh, everything together as far as that goes. And before I get to this week's coverage, I will have some feedback to address from usual friend of the show, Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode 91. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. As you've noticed, here we have a couple of episodes without real quote-unquote villains as such, but misguided people who cause trouble and need the super friends to show them the error of their ways. Very 70s in sensibility. In Professor Goodfellow's Geek, G-E-E-C, I'm surprised that no one asked the professor directly what he thought he'd do all day once the geek took over pretty much all human functions. Things often become clearer once they're considered from the point of view of how would this affect me personally. The mouse in the computer reminded me of the apocryphal story of the supposed origin of the term bug in computer programming. Allegedly, back in 1945, when problems arose with Harvard's Mark II electromechanical calculator, a precursor to later electronic computers, the programmers discovered a dead moth at a shorted-out relay, removed it, replaced the relay, and solved the problem, leading to, quote-unquote, bug to describe a problem, and debug to describe the fix. While the story of the moth is true, the term bug to describe a machine malfunction is much older than this, but it's a good story. As for your question about why Plastic Man is called plastic, it goes back to the older meaning of the word plastic, as an adjective meaning pliable, malleable, or flexible which certainly describes the plastic man. Of course, nowadays we tend to think of plastic as a noun, meaning any range of synthetic substances which can be molded into particular shapes while soft, which is then set into a rigid or slightly soft form. The Weathermaker gives us an early look at man-made climate change and its dangers, but as you pointed out, it would have made sense to note in the episode that changing glacier's climate from arctic to temperate by geothermal means rather than redirecting the Gulf Stream would still have adversely affected the world's climate. I guess that wouldn't have made for a satisfying conclusion to the story, and I'm sure that our knowledge of climate change was less than complete back then anyway. Thanks for another fun Man of Screen episode. Live long and prosper, Dave. And as always, thank you, Dave, for writing in. You know, I as far as Dave's comments on uh, Professor Goodfellow's Geek, you know, the computer episode, yeah, that's not something I thought of too much. What Professor Geek would do while the machine was running human affairs. I guess when I was... Watching the episode, I pretty much thought that he would just keep the geek from malfunctioning. 
And I should have known better because he pretty much went on a tear about how the geek couldn't malfunction. So definitely something I probably should have thought of when I was recording the episode as is when I did. And uh, I also thank you, Dave, for your uh, story about the, the uh, or- alleged origin of the word bug in computer programming. I did not know the moth story, and I am uh, and I appreciate you enlightening me on not only that, but the old uh, definition of our plastic as an adjective, which is not really used as much today. Like I mentioned, now we just think of more of our more rigid plastics in the noun form of the word. But since, uh, you know, that would make sense, as Plastic Man mate is of that era. You know, obviously not as old as Batman and Superman, but he did appear in 1941 in Police Comics number 1. So yeah, the uh, if that was how Plastic was being used back then, then yeah, it's definitely an apt name for the character. So thank you, Dave, for enlightening me to that. As far as the Weathermaker episode goes, I really don't have anything else to add to Dave's comments. I mean, we knew far less about man-made climate change than we do now, and I'm sure the writers of the episode didn't know nearly as much about it as leading scientists, so I don't know how much research goes into writing a children's cartoon, but they probably did basic science knowledge and kind of went from there. So, thank you, Dave, for writing in. I encourage any of you to also write in. Email address is manascreen at gmail.com. So, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, play a promo, then I'm going to come back with Day of the Plant Creatures and the shorts that surround it. Hang around, folks. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Identity Crisis. Lone Wolf and Cub. Hergé's Tintin. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory. When the great guests were yet to be booked. I didn't know this was going to be the Jimmy Olsen hate podcast. It's always the Jimmy Olsen hate podcast. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. Ultraman, this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo. And this is Ultraman... Of how they spoke at length. When I read a comic, story comes first and art comes second. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. Those are our people, Emily. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Superman has basically the same relationship with Wonder Woman that he has with Batman. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. All right, welcome back, folks. All of the episodes in this segment had an original broadcast date of October 1st, 1977, and we're going to start with Day of the Plant Creatures. And our synopsis is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. 
A meteor splashes down in the Florida Everglades and causes plants to mutate into strange creatures. The Super Friends are on the case as people are getting infected and turning into plant creatures themselves. Superman finds himself infected when he saves a mill operator. The swamp plants have come alive and are turning everything they touch into plant life. Great hero! So that's what left that trail toward Florida City. <laughs> Got to find the source of the radiation and stop it. Right, and find an antidote to save Superman and the infected swamp inhabitants. First, I'll radio the authorities in Florida City and warn them of the approaching plant creatures. The radio's jammed. It must be the radiation. We're needed here. Zan, Jaina, use your Wonder Twin powers to get to Florida City and warn them. Right, Aquaman. I know just the way. Me too. Wonder, Wonder Twin, Twin powers, powers activate. Form a rain cloud. Shape of a pigeon. Superman and Wonder Woman try to stop the advancing creatures, but with no luck, and Wonder Woman is infected herself. Capturing a plant creature and taking it to Aquaman's lab, Aquaman goes to the Marianas Trench to find Florium, the only possible element which can stop the plant creatures. Mixing it into a spray, he cures Superman and Wonder Woman and stops the meteor's effect, turning everyone else back to normal. If Aquaman hadn't found the antidote, the whole world might have been one big garden. And not the Garden of Eden. There's a lesson to learn from all of this. Never interfere with the balance of nature. The results can be devastating. It took millions of years for the Earth to develop the delicate system of life it now has. And in one careless moment, it can all go to waste. Someone should teach that lesson to Gleek. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like Gleek's found himself another <laughs> wild plant <laughs> creature. <laughs> This is Justice League Computer. Please stop monkeying around with my computer reel. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so this wasn't a bad uh, plant-related episode. We are going to start with the uh, Florida Everglades. Uh, not really looking so good as a red meteor crashes into the uh, swamp. And it grows a bunch of creatures that, I don't know, they look eerily like Swamp Thing. You know, for those of you who are familiar with uh, the DC Comics character Swamp Thing, you know, a very tall creature, basically looks like he's made of plant life. You know, you know, basically a big, tall, walking plant for, for the most part. And that's kind of what these uh, creatures look like. And anything they encounter will turn into plants, including chickens and people. So if you're wandering around and you happen to see a, a green chicken running around, it's a good chance that it was affected by one of these uh, plant creatures. Now, there's always a guy in these episodes with a shortwave radio who manages to call someone for help. And apparently, uh, the person that is called is not any of the regular human authorities. It just seems though everybody calling for help has a direct line into the Hall of Justice. They must, uh, you know, advertise their phone number or something. Now, apparently uh, Aquaman is doing some experiments on sea creatures, which is not something you would necessarily expect from... Uh, the king of the seven seas, but what he's trying to do is he's trying to make food go further on the seafloor. You know, trying to push out as much of uh, the food as he can. You know, we saw a previous episode in which those creatures uh, came to Earth taking all the silicon out of the uh, ocean. And for those of you who are, and I'm not saying that this episode is related to that in any way, but they did take a lot of the silicate out of the seafloor to help feed those alien creatures. And maybe Aquaman is doing something similar, trying to make whatever nourishment is in the sea floor for the sea life to go that much further. I don't know. I might have put far more thought into that than the writer of this episode did. So, 
Apparently, the call got underground to Aquaman, but the super friends have trouble picking up the faint signal. So they triangulate the signal, and they're on their way to the swamp. And now there's this guy who's trying to run away from the plant creatures, and he ba- and they basically chase him into this shack to hide. And you know he seems to be boxed in, so running into this place does not seem to work out too well for him. And my opinion on that was apparently rewarded as the super friends find the shack and the dangerous plants. The super friends are on the scene, and Wonder Woman tells Jaina not to touch the leaves with her gloves because I guess it'll take over. She'll be assimilated by the plants. But apparently it's okay for Batman to do so, because he probably has uh, plant repellent on his gloves or something. You know, he, uh, I don't know, he dipped his hand in algicide or something, and now his gloves are dangerous to plant life or something. This enables him to uh, touch the uh, dangerous plants. And one thing I love seeing is Batman's traveling crime lab in the Batcopter. And it's analyzing this leaf, and it shows the leaf uh, doing a little jig, so... The micro-video viewer should tell us what we need to know. There appears to be some sort of glowing cosmic radiation. Cosmic radiation? You mean from outer space? Exactly. Something has given those leaves a strange form of life. I hope Superman and Wonder Woman can find a clue to what's causing it. We have this uh, little clue that it's alive, and they discover that it's from space because it's emitting some cosmic rays. You know, probably the kind of cosmic rays that turned the Fantastic Four into, uh, well, the Fantastic Four. So Superman finds something in a barn. It's some guy being stalked by plant creatures. And instead of landing between the guy and the plants and posturing, perhaps he should have just flown the guy out of there and not messed with the plant creatures. Or maybe at the very least, uh, use his heat vision on them. Because Superman is infected. Yeah, which was a surprise to me. Apparently this swamp plant can infect even Superman. So, at this point, the twins are going to warn someone about what's going on, and and Zan is so useless. He's turning into a rain cloud as his method of transportation. I haven't seen this character accomplish anything yet. And I will say that with the shorter runtime of these episodes, the main features being 20 minutes, 22, 23 minutes, as opposed to the 42, 43 minutes of the episodes last season, there's a lot of talking in this episode as Aquaman and Batman, you know, science their way to a solution. And uh, this is where we learn that a meteor is made up of solid iron. I tell you, it was a flying saucer. Crashed back into the center of the swamp. Those things you call plant creatures are really disguised Martians. It wasn't a flying saucer, Aquaman. It was a meteor, and it landed a few miles from here. A meteor? So that's what's creating the plant creatures. We've got to find it. But how? A meteor is composed mostly of solid iron. When it passed through the Earth's atmosphere, the superheating should have magnetized it. Exactly. And my bat compass could lead us right to it. I'm not sure if that's the case for all meteors, but I guess it's the case for the meteor here. I mean, this solid iron thing could be the case for most space meteors. I don't know. I am not uh, an asteroid geologist. So, it could be true. It could not be. I don't know. Look it up if you're so interested. I'm not. So Jaina, who is a bird, you know, she can change it to any kind of animal, so she changes into a bird that can fly. Seems to have been attacked by a larger bird, and while Rain Cloud Zan is continuing to be all kinds of useless. And he asks, what's a Wonder Brother for? He asks this after rescuing Jaina, so apparently bad jokes of turning into liquids are exactly what a Wonder Brother is for. So Batman tries to grab the meteor, but is grabbed by the surrounding plant creatures, and he's about to be assimilated into the collective. As time goes on, you can see the plants that are growing on Superman, who tries to slow down the plant people with cables from a suspension bridge. And moving the cables from the, suspen- the suspension bridge seems to have 
no effect on how the bridge holds up the road. So I'm guessing uh, the writers, the animators, have either forgotten or don't care what these suspension cables are actually for. They are suspending something, like a roadway, over the water. So that's two super friends down that the plant men are walking toward Florida City. So, so I guess we know what state this is. And not that that's a perfect indication because I live in New York and there is a village of Florida about 20 minutes from my house and, another, and a town of Florida about two hours upstate. So, But with the extra plant life, we're going to assume this is actually Florida. And Superman is going to bring a plant creature to the Aqualad. I guess already being contaminated makes it easy enough for him to handle another. I guess he can't get any more contaminated than he already is. So the material they need to make an antidote to this uh, plant takeover is, of course, at the bottom of the Mar- Mariana's Trench, the uh, deepest part of the ocean. And fortunately, it glows in the dark, so Aquaman will know what to look for. Unfortunately, this is about 20 or 25 years too soon to ask James Cameron if they can borrow his uh, little sea vehicle that he used to uh, when he went down to the Mariana's. So Aquaman is looking for his antidote. And of course, while he's out, Gleek lets the creature out and... Everybody is fighting it as Aquaman makes an antidote. Jaina and Zan become heavy things like an iceberg and a walrus to hold the creature out of the lab. Because, yeah, you need to have an iceberg just kind of walking through uh, your lab. You know, Zan can only turn into elemental things like water, or that have water in them, like ice and actual water and air. Rain clouds, stuff like that. But the struggle is for naught as Zan is turned into a plant person and... Aquaman sprays one of the plant people, and it turns it into a tree. And now they look like farmers spraying pesticides. They're kind of going around and uh, spraying all the plant creatures with pesticides, and they're the ones that weren't people to begin with are just withering away. So, the lesson here is not to interfere with the balance of nature. Now, no one really interfered. It was actually nature that did the interfering. And as it was an accident of nature that brought the meteorite to Earth and the plant, Earth and the plant people, so that was the story that it was. Nothing really great about it what we're going to do now is we're going to move right on to the shorts that accompany this and the next short dr fright is going to get complete coverage as it contains superman and superman will be teamed up with wonder woman in this episode and the synopsis goes superman and wonder woman thought thwart dr fright's plan to turn everyone into people afraid of everything around them okay so this just seems like a scarecrow episode for the most part even though Jonathan Crane is uh, nowhere in sight. Really, no DC villains appearing anywhere uh, at this point in the show. That'll come later. So, it's a warm summer night in Metropolis, and a strange visitor is coming their way. Not Superman. It's a very scary-looking blimp. And apparently, this Dr. Fright is releasing fear gas on the city. Seems like something that would happen in Gotham with the Scarecrow, like I just mentioned. Again, this is a natural task for Batman, who is standing right there. But, nope, it's Superman and Wonder Woman that go off. I guess part of it is uh, because it's taking place in Metropolis. But for that reason alone, Superman will be a given, but you could probably have sent Batman on his way as opposed to Wonder Woman. And apparently, Dr. Fright is so sure of this fear gas, it's going to bring peace on Earth because people are going to be too afraid to wage war. Soon, my fear gas will be spread throughout the world. People will be too frightened to harm anything or anyone. No more crimes! Total peace on Earth! Head for the Metro Stadium. A hundred thousand football fans are going to have a little surprise. All right, that's uh, definitely a nice dream, I guess. You know, trying to uh, stop war is never a bad thing. Doing it by spraying the planet full of fear gas, maybe not so good. I don't know. I'll let you be the judge of that. Now, Superman found the blimp by listening for engines. Not sure why he needed to stand on the invisible jet to do it. 
Now, this blimp is quite huge, and the scale is shown when you realize how tiny the invisible jet is when it's compared to the blimp. So here comes my first disappointment of this episode. The fear gas works on Superman. Really? And now suddenly Superman is afraid of everything, including a cat. You know, I'm just rolling my eyes at this point. I mean, this thing shouldn't even work on him. But Wonder Woman is trying to rescue him, and now we got a man who can fly that is afraid of heights. Yeah, that's good. I just, you know, I just can't accept as I'm watching this episode that Superman is vulnerable to this earthly gas. So now, as Superman is sprayed by some other professor they know, and uh, he's inoculated. So here is the fear gas being sprayed on a football stadium, making the running back scared of the big hit. Which doesn't make really make him much of a football much of a football player, does it? When he goes after fright, Superman kind of blows the fear gas back at him, making him fearful fearful of everything. And turnabout is only fair play. The antidote is distributed, and Doctor Fright tries to justify his actions because, like I mentioned before, if he made everyone peaceful, that would get rid of crime and make man a much more docile creature. Which will leave Wonder Woman and Superman to give the moral of this story. The antidote has been distributed, Super Friends. Everyone's back to normal. You've ruined everything. Don't you see what I was doing for the world? Man would have been docile, peaceful. Fear is not the way to create peace, Dr. Fright. True, it can only be accomplished when everyone works together to achieve it. Which again makes sense. Another message that's good for today's world. Not a lot of peace and not a lot of people cooperating. I'll just say that and move on to... Drag Race. And this is the Wonder Twins morality play, which aired second during the hour. The Wonder Twins save the lives of students foolishly in a hot rod race. So first is a safety lesson by not skateboarding into traffic. You know, good advice. You never want to be uh, in the middle of the street when a car's coming. So we start off with the uh, police calling the Wonder Twins about a drag race. I guess they can't handle, handle it themselves. And now here's a fun note. The two racers are Tom and Jerry, one of my favorite cat and mouse cartoon duos. And wouldn't you know it, one of our racers nearly goes over the side of a cliff. And the animal will turn into a bucket of water and then be turned into an ice bridge. And then it's a good thing nobody slipped going over the ice bridge. And that's kind of how the rescue happens. I mean, this was a good example of what can happen if you illegal drag race on an active street. I'm not saying you're going to go over a cliff, but it increases the odds of you hurting yourself. You know, I'm going to talk, you know, eventually about Back to the Future, Part 3, and Marty almost gets, quote unquote, no pun intended, dragged into a drag race, and the outcome for him could have been very bad. Just say that. Alright, now we're going to move on to the uh, final episode, in this hour at least. Fire! Batman and Robin, accompanied by Rima, pursue two escaped juvenile delinquents driving a stolen truck with dynamite in it toward a forest fire. The kids rescue a family at the Pine Lodge campground before the heroes find them. I'm going to come right out and say it. I have no idea who Rima is. I have no knowledge of her character. But it's Rima who goes to this burning forest with Batman and Robin. And these two criminals who are being escorted to jail steal a truck full of dynamite. Which seems to be a very intelligent thing to do during a forest fire. So apparently Rima can communicate with animals. Which does that make her kind of a land-based Aquaman? She can communicate with the land creatures while he communicates with the sea creatures? I don't know. Now, after rescuing some workers, Batman, Robin, and Rima learn about the criminals with the dynamite truck. And, you know, I like that this episode became a race against time, you know, once the dynamite caught fire. But, you know, this is that era where the Batmobile has anything you need. Batman has any kind of gadget he needs to do whatever he needs to do. You know, my old uh, favorite phrase, if this is the era in which if, if Batman needed a Tasmanian dwarf that could tap dance while playing the harmonica, he'd have one in his utility belt. And now, as Batman and Robin leave, it's amusing to see the attention he's getting. Rima, meanwhile, is totally ignored sitting in the Batmobile. They must not know who she is either. Now, before we 
But the criminals are caught, the fire is stopped, and before we close the segment out, Superman teaches us to put cold water on birds. So, that's that for that segment. I'm going to take another break, play another promo, then I'm going to come back with the uh, the next hour, uh, Super Friends versus Super Friends, and the story that surrounded that one. Hang around, folks. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. <sighs> okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. All right, welcome back, folks. The episodes in this segment were originally broadcast on October 8th, 1977. And we're going to start with Super Friends vs. Super Friends. And our synopsis, as always, is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. After rescuing two scientists in a diving bell from attack by an octopus, two beings from the underwater city of Oceana kidnap Aquaman and the scientists with a muscle control ray. You know, this dungeon can't hold me. The invisible muscle control ray will make it impossible for you to escape, surface dweller. Come, Narek. We must capture more monsters for the games. My emergency ring signal can't penetrate this undersea mountain. If I could just get it off, I may be able to get a message to the other super friends. Aquaman manages to place his signal ring on the beings when they go to find more fighters. The other heroes search for the signal with the Wonder Twins joining in. The Oceanians catch the Wonder Twins and then the heroes. When the heroes are supposed to fight each other, Superman is able to use his heat vision to destroy the main muscle control ray. We have only seconds before they order us to battle. We've got to knock out the muscle ray first. I think I can still control my heat vision. It worked, Superman. We've regained control of our muscles. Galloping gladiators, let's get them. No, they can't see that the ray is off. But if they know we're free, they'll use their portable muscle rays. First, we fake a fight, and only one of us wins. Then the rest of us play possum and get taken off the field where we can rescue the twins and the Navy scientists. Right, I'll be the winner. Serpentine is right up my alley. Now, Bogart, surface dwellers... Fight to the finish! Alright, let's give them the battle of the century. Aquaman's fight with the monster results in the city being flooded, which needs Superman to save it. The inhabitants overthrow the leader who created the battles. I hope you and your people have learned a lesson. Yes. We know now the Tyrannic's way of ruling was wrong, and we have banished him. It only takes one weak man to weaken an entire society. And when people devote all of their attention to destructive games, it's not long before society itself is the target of their destruction. So went the fall of ancient Rome. We shall never rebuild our Colosseum. Instead, we will let it remind us of the evil ruler who gave us monsters in games instead of freedom. 
Speaking of monsters, that serpentine's lucky I didn't get at him. I'd have shown him a thing or two. It's him! Serpentine! Help! <laughs> oh. You sure showed him, big brother. All right, now, first thing I'm going to say is this episode, you know, although longer, really reminds me of uh, the Filmation Superman episode, uh, the Mermen from Emor, I believe it was, when uh, the Emorians were capturing people from the surface, who also lived in a buried city, Emor obviously being Rome spelled backwards, were capturing surface people to participate in their gladiatorial games, as I recall. So this episode does invoke some of that, while being quite a bit different. Everybody is being studied as this episode starts. Some explorers are studying uh, the sea life, and these guild creatures are studying the surface dwellers. And obviously the first thing we start off with is a mystery about who these green guild creatures are. You know, but they do look very, uh, you know, fish-like, I guess. I mean, they look like how you would expect a sentient undersea creature to be. So this naval captain brings the emergency to the Super Friends. It's the captain of the Navy's exploration fleet. Super Friends, our exploratory diving bell has been attacked by a giant octopus. It severed the lifeline, and there's only one hour of air. I'll take care of it. The ocean is my domain. A giant octopus should be no problem for the king of the sea. Contact us if you need us. Right. And as Aquaman points out, the ocean is his domain, and he's going to take control of the situation. I am certainly glad that we have Aquaman here to tell us these things. But, you know, he's right. He is the king of the seas. He should take care of this. Especially since he's a lone super friend that can breathe underwater. So basically what this octopus has done is, it has attacked the diving bell, and the octopus, when Aquaman arrives, it's not exactly cooperating as it snags Aquaman in its tentacles, but a quick telepathic signal from uh, the king of the sea bringing the fish-like cavalry. But this octopus has one hell of a grip, I'll tell you. And what ends up happening is that Aquaman basically ties up the octopus's tentacles in a knot to clear up the diving bell. So this episode we're going to see right off the bat is a pretty decent showcase for Aquaman, and it's also a pretty good showcase for Superman, which is what we're focused on mostly in this podcast. Now the creatures, meanwhile, think Aquaman is a surface dweller, and I wonder if that's because he doesn't look fish-like, quote-unquote, whatever looking fish-like means. Now, to their eyes, I guess he looks like anyone else from the surface, except with Finn's feet. I guess they think it's some kind of special effect or something, but it's not. That's really, uh... As far as the comic goes, obviously, that's definitely Aquaman swimming out there on the ocean. So the creatures are sending out some kind of a wave, which Aquaman says is sapping his strength, and apparently Aquaman wears a ring to call for help, which kind of looks like a Legion of Superheroes ring, but obviously there are no Legion of Superheroes in these episodes. I want to say the Legion was still a fairly new concept at this point, maybe only around for 10 or so years. And I must say, so much for teamwork. While Aquaman is struggling, everyone is uh, just hanging out at the Hall of Justice. You know, I'm not sure exactly why Aquaman was allowed to go out alone. I mean, maybe someone else should have gone out as backup. You know, maybe Superman could have hung out in the sky, maybe, you know, a thousand feet above the ocean or something, and just kept an eye on Aquaman. And if things got two in a hand, they could just come in and uh, throw a punch. So now the rest of the uh, starting Super Friends go out and search for Aquaman. And when I say starting Super Friends, I basically mean Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman and Robin. The Wonder Twins, their job is to basically hang around and guard the Hall of Justice. And now, apparently, there is another sunken city, Oceania, which is, according to the narration, a sister city to Atlantis, but is not Atlantis. And apparently, we have gladiatorial games. Like I mentioned before, this is when I really started feeling the connection to the uh, Filmation Emor episode. 
Now, Aquaman is fruit, and he gets out of his cage, showing off his impressive strength, which, in some incarnations of the character, is comparable to Superman. I'm not exactly sure what Aquaman's strength levels are in this cartoon, but this cartoon does not go out of its way to show Aquaman being as strong as the Man of Steel. So, Batman has a submarine, because, of course, he does, and Wonder Woman's invisible jet can also fly under the sea, so they are both under the water. Superman is above the water flying. I guess both the invisible jet and the uh, bat sub are airtight for them to talk. And Superman probably won't be able to talk while holding his breath. So right now, Aquaman is chained to a wall, and he, you know, he does some blustering. You know, he is not giving up, and as well, he shouldn't. But he's going to bluster that the dungeon can't hold him, but you know what? He's shackled to the wall. It's a little hard to convince your captors that the dungeon's not going to hold you if you're shackled to a wall. Just something Aquaman might want to think about. So the Wonder Twins have served their purpose as hindrances by blowing up the electronics at the Hall of Justice. But they did get the coordinates, but since they've really screwed up the technology, they have no exact clue as to whether Wonder Woman got it. And since they're not sure, they're off to find out. Almost immediately after, we find out that Wonder Woman did get the coordinates, so the Wonder Twins don't necessarily need to do anything. They can just sit at the Hall of Justice and not get into any trouble. But what do the Wonder Twins do? They pilot right into an Oceanian submarine's mouth. So, And just so you know that the Oceanian muscle control ray apparently works on Superman and Wonder Woman, so everyone is dragged to Oceania. And they're all captured and will have to fight each other. So here we go. A very early interpretation of heroes fighting heroes. Which, personally, I'm never a fan of. Heroes fighting heroes is a staple of Marvel comics. Which, I've never been a big Marvel guy. I'm a DC guy. And heroes fighting heroes is not really something I enjoy seeing. Fortunately, it doesn't exactly happen that way. Now we're at a point where Zan and Jaina finally do something useful. As does Gleek by taking the guard's keys and freeing the twins. Basically, he uses his tail to lift the keys off the guard's belt. When you have a blue space monkey, that's what you use them for. The things that only a blue space monkey can do. There's a lot of things that a blue space monkey can't do and shouldn't do, and he tries to do those things as well, usually with disastrous results. Now, as the end will become a sheet of ice and Jane a hippopotamus so that she can ram the guard into a cell, but as usual, it does no good, and even though they do get the guards into the cell, somebody else shows up and they're caught again. So, being led into the arena, Superman uses his heat vision to melt the muscle ray because, and deactivate it, because apparently the muscle control ray has... No bearing on his heat vision. He can just fire that. He just can't move his muscles. He can use other superpowers that have longer ranges. So there goes that advantage for the uh, Oceanians. Now, the muscle control ray is invisible. And Superman melts it with his heat vision. So can't they fire this muscle control ray out of a green gun? Can't they see that Superman melted that? Well, if they can see it, they're not really saying anything about it. But the ray is off as evidenced by the fact that Superman has noticed he can move. So they have a plan. They go into fake a fight. There will be no real fight between superheroes, just a fake one. Aquaman has volunteered to win because he believes he'll have the best chance against the serpentine creature, and so the others can save the day. Wonder Woman lassos Batman and Robin, that takes uh, care of them, and Aquaman ropes her, and... I wonder what modern audiences would think of the way Aquaman kind of stands on Wonder Woman's prone form. He, uh, steps on her with his left foot and has his hands up in the air in victory. Obviously, though, due to the plot of this episode, Wonder Woman didn't exactly give up much of a fight. Then Aquaman beats Superman with a flagpole, and they are all dragged away. The mission is completed. The super friends have faked their fight, and now Aquaman is the winner. But now Aquaman has a real fight on his hands as against the Serpentine, which looks like a two-headed turtle with crab legs. And basically, these other two guards kind of wheel the super friends off, basically right to the door of the disposal room, and then decide that they're going to dispose of them later, I guess. They have a union gig, and it's suddenly their lunch hour. But, either way, they leave the Super Friends right out there in the middle of the hallway in front of the uh, 
disposal room, and I'm not sure if he was expecting this superhero to just kind of walk right in gleefully, but it's not happening yet. So either way, that's a, these two guys are going to just leave the super friends out there in front of the disposal room, and they're going to pay for that. As Superman creates a cutting tool with his fingers and a valve and rescues the Navy scientist, and he punches the wall a bit and breaks the hole in which to recover Zan and Jaina. Meanwhile, the struggle between Aquaman and the creature destroys the serpentine's tank, and the monster goes nuts, and that floods the dungeon. Now, Superman and Aquaman save the king from the serpentine, and Batman and Robin use their bat ropes to wrap up its uh, crab legs, and to keep the claws from biting anybody. And that's where we get to the ending, where the Oceanians learn that the king's rule was wrong, as were the gladiator-like games, and they won't rebuild the Colosseum, and they're going to elect better rulers. I don't know, I guess they're suddenly going to find democracy or something, I don't know. And uh, the uh, decoder segment will have me believe that Manster sounds like Monster. It does not, no matter how bad your accent is. So, that was an entertaining episode, even if it did remind me of the Merman episode, of the Emor episode. And this episode had villains in the uh, Ocean and Emperor, and, you know, they fought a monster. And it was more than a bad guy trying to save the Earth does misguided thing. This was somewhat of a villainous plot, and I'm glad I got a chance to see this one. Definitely one of the better ones that I've seen so far. I did mention this before, but I do have another Superman story to talk about. The Monster of Dr. Droid, which features both Superman and Wonder Woman. And our synopsis is as follows. Dr. Droid kidnaps Wonder Woman and tries to transfer her mind into his robotic monster. Superman will stop you, Dr. Droid. You'll never succeed. Of course I will, Wonder Woman. And I'll be a national hero for my scientific advancements. You can't help some people by harming others. On the contrary, mankind will appreciate your sacrifice. Now, to transfer your brainwaves to my android. Sorry to interrupt, Dr. Droid, but my freeze breath should cool off your plans. But Superman puts a freeze on his plans. Obviously a freeze with his freeze breath. So early on, this is kind of a play on the Frankenstein story as uh, Dr. Droid builds a giant droid that just kind of walks around down Country Road to see what kind of trouble it can get into. And it gets into some. And at this point, there's a report about an eight-foot robot monster walking down Country Road, and apparently this Dr. Droid is known to people because it was known that he was creating a robot. Super friends, an eight-foot-tall robot monster has been sighted on a country road near Wheatville. Information has it that Dr. Droid was working on such a creature. We'll get right on it. I'll take the invisible jet and follow you, Superman. Oh, good. So the monster scares the family, and of course the little girl goes back to, for her teddy bear. Because what's the first thing you do when you're running from something scary and you drop your teddy bear? You go back for that teddy bear. I don't know how many times a character has gotten into trouble going back for a dog or even a teddy bear. It almost happened here. The girl goes back for the teddy bear, and the cartoon shows this kid has no fear. Which, I don't know. Kids can be pretty skittish. I mean, kids can be brave and unwavering in the face of weird things, but think of my own daughter, so I need for Blue Robot, she'd probably be scared of it. So, it makes me wonder what kind of world these kids live in, that they're okay with an eight-foot robot. So, the monster throws an all-drug of Superman, and it's slow and stupid, the monster is. And I commend the robot for allowing Wonder Woman time to issue one-liners, but he does accidentally trip over a natural gas line, and Wonder Woman passes out. Now, I will say one thing about the way Superman catches the oil, the, uh, oil truck. I love how the Super Friends theme swells as Superman sets down the truck in a clearly heroic act. You know, if the John William Williams theme played during that, I'm sure people would be jumping up and down cheering. But the John Williams theme was not a fact of life yet when this episode was created. Superman the movie was still a year plus away. 
Let's do a man quickly gives chase after the monster takes Wonder Woman home, basically to its hideout. Now, Superman will unleash infrared vision in this episode to find Wonder Woman. And I believe that this is the first time we've seen infrared vision on the screen outside of the comics. I don't recall any of you having watched anything in which Superman used infrared vision. It's not a very common power. It's a power that plenty of people know he has. However, in this episode, Superman, without any trouble at all, has infrared vision. And he can use that to track the robot. So, so Dr. George is going to use Wonder Woman to increase the droid. Droid's power, and I do like Superman's entrance as he uses his super breath to freeze uh, Dr. Droid's control machines. Of course, at this point, the robot goes nuts, and Dr. Droid tries to escape. And at this point, Wonder Woman and Superman split up. He takes care of the uh, robotic monster, and she takes care of the scientists. And she catches them in an interesting fashion. She ropes a boulder, you know, showing up her fine roping skills, and drops it in front of the car. Wouldn't it have been easier and much more uh, dynamic to see? Her rope the car. You know, she might give a few people whiplash, but that's okay. I am definitely willing to uh, sacrifice Superman's moral code for my entertainment, own entertainment. But meanwhile, Superman can go after the robot, and I wonder, under the rules of the day, can Superman punch the robot? Well, we don't necessarily find that out because he doesn't need to do anything to it. It just falls and breaks. Superman will punch a boulder, though. So, he does punch something. And now we get the ending morality. Trying to advance science is a noble idea but not at the expense of jeopardizing the lives of others. Well, that just about wraps up everything, Wonder Woman. But what about the little white mouse in Dr. Droid's laboratory? Oh, him? He's just fine. <laughs> Advancing science is a noble, according to Wonder Woman, but not at the expense of others. So, good lesson to be learned there. You can advance science all you want, you just can't do it at the expense of the decent people who shouldn't live here. And probably be happier somewhere else. All right, now we're going to move on to the uh, the uh, Wonder Twins morality play. This is Vandals. When two teenagers decide to vandalize a high school, their sister calls the Wonder Twins in for assistance. It's just in time, too, for the Vandals end up trapped inside a faulty elevator that threatens to careen down the shaft in a death plunge. All right, so we're dealing with Vandals this time around. It's obvious by the title. But first, Batman is going to teach electrical safety. Like, don't plug your entire house into one outlet so you don't burn it down. So, there's that. Now, apparently, the uh, girl in the car is the voice of reason here if these two dudes want to uh, wreck this lab, the print shop. And like everyone else, she called the Wonder Twins and not the cops. And the Wonder Twins, meanwhile, are practicing their volleyball skills. You know, I'm going to continue to harp on the fact that Zan has the most useless transformation power ever. Not that becoming water is going to do anything in this situation. And my question becomes, you know, when Zan has to turn into water, Gleek always has a bucket. Where did the bucket go when Zan turns into normal? Maybe he transforms into a water and bucket. So these two knuckleheads set off the alarm. Because they got a D in print shop. So after being rescued from a broken elevator, these two idiots are suspended for three months. And their parents are on the hook for thousands in damages. Lesson. Get better grades. And don't wreck other people's stuff. Especially if you're a minor because your parents will be stuck paying for it. So there's that. Now, energy mass will wrap us up for this week. Batman and Robin and the Atom stop a rogue energy mass and save a Japanese bullet train. And it is certainly good to see the Atom, Ray Palmer. I didn't watch any of his filmation shorts, so this is the first time I'm seeing the classic Atom on TV. I mean, the version of Legends of Tomorrow is Ray Palmer, but there's not really much of the Atom there. More like Iron Man Light when he's in costume at all. Now, for some reason, Batman and Robin and the Atom happen to be near Japan, which explains why the rest of the group is going to stay home and sit this one out. Now, stopping the train would ordinarily be a job for Superman, but... The Batcopter, combined with the Atom's shrinking ability, is enough to do the job after a long struggle. Now, this energy mass is somehow neutralized, and we're not shown how, but 
the Atom to take the nap on Batman's shoulder. Now, it's Batman and Robin rescuing a train with the Atom. Not a story that really lends itself well to Batman and Robin, but it worked in this case because the Batcopter happened to have a bat parachute. Everything is saved, the energy mass is sent back to where it belongs, and that's pretty much it for this week's episode of the all-new Super Friends Hour. Next time, I'm going to cover the episodes, the main Super Friends episodes, Planet of the Neanderthals and Coming of the Anthropods, and like I always do, I'll mention the, uh, the briefs that go along with it. Additional coverage if Superman is involved. If you have any feedback on this episode or any others, feedback is always welcome. Email me at manofscreen at gmail.com. You can, if you want to leave a message over the Facebook group, just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. Also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. So, until next time, folks, have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo. No opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.